thanks uh, for uh, thanks for filling out great cards and asking for prayer concerns. Thanks for your faithfulness in giving to the church. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Acts chapter eight. And I'm saying Bible loosely. It would include all of the technological wonders, the computer in your pocket. Um, remember when com- my computer was like, the Pentium 2 came out. Remember that? Like it plays Atari games. That was a big deal. So now you pull out your searchable Insta Bible from your pocket if you want. There are, uh, there are, papal, there are, there are paper uh, scriptures in front of you as well. They used to call them a book. You guys have heard of them probably. There's a Bible right in front of you. That's a bad joke, but there's a Bible in front of you. If you need a Bible, take it. We want to give that to you. Uh, so go, go ahead and do that. And I just want to mention as well, in addition to the, the dedication being um, postponed, which are really great, uh, you ought to come back for that. Dedications are a blessing. They're a gift. It's a reminder to us to be countercultural. Uh, the, world, the world oftentimes, either unspoken or in spoken ways, says that kids are sort of a burden. They're kind of a, they're kind of a drain on your resources. It takes $7.3 million to raise a child now, right? You've seen these articles. Like, give that kid some, cheat, some like, Cheetos. They'll be okay, right? Or not Cheetos. Wow, that, all the health nuts are like, no. Cheerios, low in sodium. Give them those. It's not that expensive. So you can come to a dedication. It's a gift, a reminder that children are a gift from the Lord, a heritage. And uh, I want to rejoice with the church too. And if, uh, if you know, we actually... Um, church growth, we're going to write a book on it. Uh, we grew our nursery like 20% in the last three weeks. Last three, four weeks, uh, a couple of families, Tony and Ashley Cortez uh, gave birth to a child, so that's exciting. If you know them, you could, uh, you could, you could welcome new life. That's stuff. We, uh, we rejoice with you guys. And as well, Doug and Ashley Bennett last night, I believe, so like less than maybe 12 hours ago or something, um, more, yeah, another, another child, um, born a baby. So if you know them, if you know those families, maybe check in. Um, some of you who have gone through the first few weeks of, of children, right? It's just, it's terrifying. It really is. It's, it's like what, a human, you have to care for this and you're not sleeping and it's, it's difficult. So make sure you check in. Uh, we want to care well for those who are, uh, who are re- receiving new children into their, into their lives and we're excited about it. Acts chapter 8 is where we're at. Acts 8 is where we're at. As you know, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Acts. We try our best uh, here at at Four Oaks to walk through books of the Bible chronologically. We want to start in the beginning and say, God, what do you have for us as we walk through? So uh, the end of, I guess the end of the summer, beginning of September, we started into the the book of Acts, and now we are in Acts chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading. I'd love for you to read with me. Uh, if you're new here, this is going to seem, it's going to seem a little like story time. Uh, it's very counterintuitive. Here we are, a bunch of adults, and we've gathered, and I'm going to read like a big chunk of text. It's tempting maybe, and a lot of people might say like, oh, you should apologize, right? You should apologize reading. Uh, I want to do no such thing. In fact, I, not only do I want to not apologize for reading this big chunk of text, I want to commend it to you. This is God's word to you. Our scripture says it's very life to you that those who would be prosperous and successful, those who would be blessed, would find it, find it a joy and a delight to meditate in this word both day and night. And so it's a big, chunky text. I'm going to read from 4 to verse 40. We're going to read the whole thing. And I want to just invite you in and consider this is God's word. It's his help. It's his gift to us that he speaks. Fourth verse, Luke writing in Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear was silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, 
and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've spoken. Would you make these words precious to us today? I confess so often a coldness to your words, so often that I slip into sort of an academic approach. I want to break down and consider and critique and comment. God, I more often want to come underneath and surrender to your word. So give us the humility to do so today. I thank you for all of those who have come. I pray that we would be like this eunuch who found himself desiring to worship you, desiring to seek you, and wanting to find you in the very pages of Scripture. God, would you send your spirit that that could be the testimony of of us today? Here we are. We've worshipped you. We're opening these pages to find you, to seek you. We want to say, of of whom do these words speak? And I pray, God, that through this, he would reveal Jesus to us. Make him the desire of our hearts, the object of our worship, the recipient of our service. We ask that he would have first thing, first place in all things. We thank you for today, God. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your favorite joke? Can you think of it? Think of your favorite joke? It seems like a joke a little bit, right? Doesn't it? Have you heard, have you heard the one about Samaria, Philip, a magician, the eunuch, and the truth? They walk into a bar, right? Like, isn't that kind of what seems like this passage? This text is, is intriguing to say the least. It's interesting, Right? What are we going to make of the ministry, the person of Philip? And that's probably what overriding this chapter is really about. It's about the ministry, the person of Philip. It's a character study in what he is up to and how God is using him. But we find that God is not interested, he's not interested in any one kind of people. You know that God is, is unbelievably diverse, right? He loves he loves, he loves, he loves, who, he loves new things and interesting things and varied things. What else explains insects, right? It's like how many variations and how many legs and wings in the back and wings in the front, wings in the side, wings everywhere, right? Stingers on the front, stingers on the back. It's like he just, he just never gets enough, more. How many, does anyone like a, uh, what's the word for that? I was going to say, uh, I was going to say like, now that's, what's that? Entomologist. I was going to say an endocrinologist, but that's like you're like, it's like urine and stuff, I think. So, um, an entomologist, right? Someone knows how many millions of insects, maybe billions, different kinds of insects. And God loves diversity. Another, another, another. Let's make another, right? And in Acts chapter 8 specifically, I'm reminded that God loves to meet People. Jesus loves to meet people of all kinds. Samaritan Simon the magician. Ethiopian treasurer eunuch guy. He never gets a, he never gets a name. Just the eunuch. 
placeholders for God's Spirit moving to meet. Jesus loves to meet all different kinds of people. We're going to do a couple of things, a couple of big things with this chapter. Here's where I want us to sort of land and answer a couple of questions. The first one, I want to look at the big picture of the gospel in individual life. So that's the first thing we're going to note, the gospel in individual life. Just I just want to comment on what's happening in Acts chapter 8. The second thing we're going to look at is the response that is, respect, is, that is expected and necessary for those who hear the truth about Jesus, the response that's necessary. And we're going to get at both those big things sort of through a character study of Philip. That's where we're going to go. We're going to get at it through a character study of Philip. So I'm just going to start out and I want to make a comment in a big picture about where we're at in Acts. Have you been with us for a while? Do you have a couple of the study books? If you don't, we make these little study books and they're free. There should be a green one at the welcome table back there. You can take it as you go. It should help you go along. Yes, Miss uh, Miss Hughes has one right there. So if you're studying along, you know that you can think back and where have we been? We've been going somewhere. We've come through eight, seven chapters and now we're in the eighth chapter, right? And I want to make a comment about the big picture idea of of the good news of Jesus, how the preaching has happened, how the response has happened. And I think in general, what I want to say is that so far we've gotten a big picture of the gospel, a big picture of it. In other words, everything seems sort of like communal and just kind of generic. Like even if you think back right to Pentecost, it says that there was 120 of them in the room. We don't get a list of the names. Not very often do we get an idea of how each of those 120 individuals was responding to what was happening, Spirit coming in Jesus, except for like all of them were speaking and all of them seemed drunk. That's the kind of stuff we get. But the 120, it seems like they're just kind of interchangeable, like they should have prison numbers, 117 checking in, 83, 75, go over here. You know, I mean, it's like just a group, just this vague Thing. And even the preaching, then Peter, who was an individual, the apostles are sort of unique, but his preaching is to the masses, it's to the crowds, people from places, kind of a placeholder. Then there's 3,000 of them, right? So now it's not just 120, but now you really need the numbers on your shirt. I'm number 1796, right? We're out of water over here, we're baptizing, send us 2030 to 47, right? just sort of generic. It's all a big crowd because the, the gospel's moving out to all the earth. That's the end goal. And it's sort of big. Much of the, the response to the gospel at this point has been communal. They shared and have everything in common. They had everything in common. They all were together. We hear that over and over and over again. And I wanna, I, I'm excited about that. One of the things that I want to do is commend to you a gospel that is bigger than just how did Jesus meet my individual sins. When I say bigger than, I don't mean less than. The foundation of Jesus' work is you meeting God and being accountable to Him and being made right. That's the foundational element of the gospel. But I want to commend much of what Acts does. You know that the gospel does big things. It brings us together in community. It goes out to all the earth. In fact, if you, I want to give a big picture of the gospel. One of the reasons we can be gospel-centered, one of the reasons that we can talk about Jesus so much is because he affects so much. My kids a couple of years ago were in pre-K, and I guess Reed is, is in one now too. They would, pick, uh, they would pick a letter of the alphabet, and they would have this bag, a brown bag, had their name on it, and they would have to put in there, they would have to go around the house and find things that were connected to that letter, what started with that letter. So letter D, I'm going to go find a dinosaur, and they put it in the bag. 
Not a real live dinosaur. But uh, you know what I mean? That's the most unnecessary qualification of all time. So the, they, put, uh, they put stuff in there connected to the letter, right? Put stuff in there. And when we think about what does the incarnation, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, how many things are related to that fact? How many things? If we start throwing them in the back, right? This isn't rhetorical, right? It's like all of the things, right? <laughs> like every single thing. We can focus on Jesus because his life, his entire being is the pinnacle of all history. Everything is related to it. Have you thought about that? We want to speak a gospel that's good news to every single aspect of your life. It affects every relationship. Your relationship with God fundamentally is changed by the work of Jesus. Your relationship to the people around you right now. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Affected by Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is affected by Jesus. Not just relationships vertically and horizontally either. Jesus affects the relationship to yourself. Every motive of your heart. The temptation and the burdens of guilt and shame that you've carried. The reasons that you work the reason that you get married, the reason that you, you talk, you speak truthfully, all of these things are affected. Every single relationship. There's a million other things, of course, that it touches. How about when, when it affects these things, right? It affects the past. You stealing that pack of gum when you were eight years old, or like me, there's a time when me and my cronies would we would steal baseball card packs. I had to go back and make restitution, bring them money and bring them cards. You know that the gospel makes a difference in 10-year-old Lance putting baseball cards in his huge puffy jacket. You see in North Dakota, we had in the winter. It's like, anyway, so that's how we get it done. That's how we get it done. It affects the past. The gospel affects the past. It affects the present. You know that in the here and the now, you are sustained. You're sustained by the life-giving power of Jesus. Your hope right now for your sins to be forgiven is still in Jesus. In a few moments, we're going to call you to this table. You're going to take bread and cup to be reminded that you need the gospel right now. Seems like the future is affected by it too, right? The gospel is a big gospel. That's what Acts has been showing us so far. It affects everything. It invades and changes everything about life. One day, you're going to get a front row seat in a new heaven and a new earth. It's not just floating in a cloud somewhere. A pastor once said, don't think of heaven as a seventh dimension floaty place, right? But the future is affected. Your future is different depending on how you deal with and reckon with Jesus. He affects everything. The earth itself Right now, there are untold number of ants creating crazy colonies under the earth all around us, right? They're making like a TV room and a sauna down there, protecting the queen. Do you know that the gospel, the ants will notice? The earth will be burned up, remade, right? The gospel affects everything, the very earth, the angels, Peter tells us that for, for thousands of years, the angels have been longing to look into. The fact that Jesus comes changes things for them. Satan hates the gospel, right? Let's talk about Jesus because he affects all of these things. Satan, you lose, right? You, you lose. 
Every single aspect. The animals. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I'm just going to... There's, there is more, there's a cliche sometimes, right? The Christians just care about their guilt and it's just individual sin. It's just them and God and that's all it is. It's just a crutch. No, Jesus affects all of life. We focus on him because it changes everything. The, you know who really, really, I think, is going to love, love, love the work of Jesus? Lambs. You know why? Lambs have been sheared and eaten and hunted by animals forever. You know the picture of the new heaven and the new earth? Lion and lamb laying together, right? Lambs love the work of Jesus. They hang out with lions. And they're like, I remember a day uh, when you would totally like, when you would like totally eat me right now. Like, that's what you would do. You would devour me right now. Jesus' work is not minor. The gospel is big and it's far-reaching. It's astounding. You can't even think you cannot think of an area. Abraham Kuyper, an amazing, amazing Dutch theologian, once had this beautiful, beautiful saying. He basically said that there is not one square inch of this universe that Jesus will not declare over it. It is mine. So the gospel is big. It's communal. It's amazing. But let me tell you what starts to happen, I think, a little bit. It starts to sort of be so abstract and so big and so out there that maybe we sort of joined the United Way and we're just kind of the part of this movement. And it is possible to individually, to individually hear the promise of every tear being wiped and everything being made new and individually to completely miss the boat. Because as broad and as big as the gospel is, it is also unbelievably narrow. It has to do with you confessing your sins precisely. It has to do with you standing before God. In other words, the gospel had to do with the nations and it also had very much to do with a single individual soul named Simon the Magician. That's what we're learning. There's a transition sort of taking place. And over the next two chapters, Acts 8 and 9, we see very narrow examples of what conversion looks like, what it means to be in Jesus, to hear the gospel and be converted individually. And that matters for us. It matters. I want to paint a picture of Jesus and his work that's so big that people cannot help but want to come and say, let's talk about it again. Someone has said it's like a diamond that's like endless endless faces so that when you turn it, light shimmers through a different way, a beautiful new way. And I, will, I want us to be a church that gives our entire life to spinning the diamond, throwing it in the air, feeling the diamond. Like, like, I just want, I want to make it as clear as possible. But I also want to press home the reality that we need to individually speak person on person. Jesus does not save un untold sort of non-specific masses of people. Jesus, save Tallahassee. I pray that prayer too. What Acts 8 and 9 remind us is that Jesus, save Tallahassee, means that John the barber and Jimmy the lawyer and Johnny the businessman will need to come face to face with the truth about Jesus and reckon with him and confess their sins and be saved. There's an individual aspect to this. And that's the big picture. And Philip is showing us that because he 
at least I'm sure a lot of this stuff was going on. But we didn't get behind the scenes. A lot of this stuff was going on, but we didn't get behind the scenes. And now we get behind the scenes with Philip. So let's dive in and see a little bit more about this character. That's the big picture. Zach's chapter 8 is about an individual response to the gospel. Let's go up and listen a little bit about Philip. Now, the first thing that might come to mind is you might say to yourself, and this happens in the Bible frequently, characters are mentioned and you think to yourself, I need like, I need like a Biblepedia or something, right? You know, like every, anybody just nerd out on a TV show and sometimes you like go to websites where they have this collection of where every character was in a particular episode and you like know their whole backstory, right? Anybody have that? Sometimes the Bible, it's like helpful. You think to yourself, I need one of those, right? You need one of those. Philip is just introduced sort of out of the blue in verse 5. Philip, was a part of this scattered group, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you might be asking yourself, who is this Philip guy? Philip is the same Philip. He was one of the seven Greek-speaking guys who were assigned to care for the Hellenistic widows in Acts chapter 6. Now, Philip was a pretty common name, right? So you might say to yourself, well, how do we know it's the same guy? That's like saying, I met a man named Matthew, and you saying, oh yeah, same guy. I had a friend named Matthew when I was a kid. Same guy, right? You might, be, you might think that's a little strange. Actually, when I meet people, I always assume I know them somehow, and my wife teases me about it, especially if they're from the Midwest. Oh, you've been to Montana? And then I'll ask them everyone they've ever known their whole life, because I want to connect. But how do we know this is, the, this is the Philip? Same guy in Acts chapter 6. I want you to look at Acts verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 8. We're helped. Acts 21, verse 8, we're helped in this matter. We can be confident, and this is going to be important because it's a character sketch of this guy. We know that this is the same Philip. Basically, because we're told so. Luke records it. This is Paul sharing his story in Acts chapter 21. And he says this, on the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea. Now, do you remember? Where did it say at the end? Philip gets ghosted out of there by the Holy Spirit. Like, whoa, he's gone. He finds himself at Azotus and then he goes on to Caesarea. So Paul says, I went to Caesarea and what? We entered the house of Philip the evangelist. So we know he's the same guy in Acts 21 as Acts chapter 8. And then the next little phrase indicates for us that it's the same guy as Acts chapter 6, the same one of the seven kind of proto-deacon-ish kind of people from Acts chapter 6. Why? Because it says that he was, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. I really like to think about Philip, and I think he's an, Eric, he's an interesting character study. I love the fact that at this time, Paul is referring to these people as the seven. It's just like, it's like a fun clubhouse name, Right? It's sort of like a, it's like a Navy SEAL special ops kind of thing. Like I imagine that you could say this phrase and there should be like Bond music behind it. One of the seven, right? And then I was going to say, that's not Bond. So that music, he's one of the seven. It's the same guy. It's the same guy. So here's the question for us, and we're going to make some application about this later. How did Philip, the table waiter, in Acts chapter 6, become Philip the evangelist by Acts chapter 21? How did Philip the table waiter in Acts chapter 6 become Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 21? And that's what the context of our chapter today tells us. It says in verse 4, we're back to Acts chapter 8, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now a couple things really quickly. 
One is this, this fact. Philip, to get Philip to Samaria, Samaria is a place that Jewish people would have avoided studiously, right? You know the stories of this? They would go for maybe even like extra days around to avoid this part of the world. There was not good relationship. These were outcasts, destitute people. You don't deal with these kind of people. It's the reason when Jesus tells a story, Luke also records. Actually, Luke is the only gospel that records the story of the Good Samaritan. It's supposed to be shocking to the audience. Who was the one that actually helped and cared? No. Uh Uh-uh. Not a Samaritan, right? That was the thinking here. So to get Philip to go and to preach the gospel in Samaria, God, God scattered them by persecution. You see the connection there? He scattered them by persecution. Philip goes and he's faithful to preach, but he goes in accordance with God's plan. God had promised, Jesus promised them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Luke is writing this to remind us that we can trust Jesus and His promises. When He promises something, you're going to be witnesses in these places. It happens. The practice of the Christian life. Here's how you find rest in the practice of the Christian life. This is what I really think it is. Every single day you fight to to discover and appropriate and rest in the promises of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. I work as hard as I possibly can to uncover the promises of Jesus, to then appropriate them for myself, and to rest in them. And that's a daily struggle. And I think Luke writes these things to make us trust. I come to Acts 8, and if I'm reading through this, I think to myself, yes, Samaria. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Samaria. But it was an unpleasant place, and I'm not sure Philip went there. It doesn't tell us. I'm not sure Philip went there out of obedience. I'm not sure if he was out. He actually had been given a task. He was helping the widows. He was serving meaningfully. I don't know that he came to the leadership and said, Send me to Samaria. I've been praying since I'm six years old. God put a burden on my heart to go there. It seems instead like God brought about persecution and suffering and trial. And in the midst of suffering and persecution and trial, he brought about great fruitfulness in Philip's life. I think there's a lesson in here for us. I really do. I believe that from... Maybe you've seen this already in your life. And if not, from now on, I believe that some of the greatest moments of fruitfulness in your life whether individually, character-wise, spiritually, in your ability to be a blessing to others, are going to come not out of your plan, but when God scatters you. Anyone feel scattered ever in life? You're able to look back and say, that was not my plan. Nope, that wasn't my plan. I want to prepare you. God is in the business of scattering His people. He really is. He will get His He will get his will accomplished in your life, sometimes through circumstances that are not in your control and ones that you do not like. You're in college right now. I love my major. You'll change it, right? (laughs) You'll change it. You just graduated. I can't wait. I love my new job. I'm totally doing what I went to school for. Uh Uh-uh, right? Raise your hand right now if you are working in the field for which you got your undergraduate degree, right? Not me, political science, right? So you're plans, right? God will scatter. 
You will be scattered. This is a definition of real life. Philip finds himself, he says like, God gave me the role of a lifetime. I'm one of the seven. I'm serving the Hellenistic widows. And the next thing you know, persecution comes. People are being murdered and stoned and he's scattered off. And the question is, will he be faithful? Will he be faithful to the Word of God to preach the Word of God when he was scattered? I think actually God does his best work in these circumstances. I think he does his best work. Christmas is coming. Did you know that? I think they scheduled it for the 25th of December this year. So the Christmas is coming, right? Mary and Joseph, the angel visits Mary. This was not her plan. She was faithful in God's plan, in God's interruption. Do unto me as you please, right? According to your word, may it be done. That's what Mary says. I, talked with, I spent a little bit of time with uh, my family over the last couple of days. Uh, my brother uh, lives in Arizona. He works at a church there. And he was telling me about a sermon um, that one of his friends preached a few weeks back. He was talking about how, how God delights to give us good things, sometimes exactly in the moments where our plans are failing. And he was preaching from the end of Romans chapter 15. And it's been said over and over and over again, Romans is the greatest letter ever written. Martin Luther said that every Christian ought to memorize the book. Just memorize the book. So if you think that we're crazy about the Bible up in here, we got nothing on Luther, right? Just, he said, memorize the book. And this sermon, this, this pastor at their church in Arizona was saying how significant and interesting it is. You know what Paul's writing about at the end of Romans 15? His plans and how they don't work. You know how many times he says in his letters, I long to come to you and speak to you face to face. Did not happen. You know what his plans are at the end of Roma, at, at, at Romans 15? He says, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to Spain, run with the bulls, preach the gospel. It's going to be great. Right? That's what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to Spain. For whatever reason, God keeps scattering Paul and saying like, nope, 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 no." Nope. And this is the main point. If Paul's plans had worked out perfectly, we would not have the book of Romans. As constructed, this unbelievable, glorious, clear, amazing description of how we are saved from our sins in Jesus Christ would not exist. God scattered Paul, and then Paul was faithful where he was scattered. I think we can learn from Philip in this. I really think we can, and I want to be a pastor who prepares his church for the idea, your life will not go as planned. It won't. Some of you may be unbelievably fortunate, but I doubt you can look back and see the most fruitful, joyful, amazing times of your life and say to yourself, like, I totally planned that. I am such a mad genius, right? Just not the way life works. The question for us, and this is why these things are so interesting, I mean, verse 4 includes both concepts. They were scattered, and what did they do? They went about preaching the Word of God. They were faithful even though scattered. A couple other things that are interesting about Philip. So he goes into this place, and it seems like God meets him with the same kind of power that Stephen had. These guys were wonder-working, miraculous, sign-giving people, and I'm not sure exactly what to make of that. I'm not sure what to make of it, except for the fact that God accompanies his preaching with signs. He casts out demons, unclean spirits, cried out with a loud voice, and left paralyzed, the lame were healed. There was much joy in that city. 
A couple of comments on the Holy Spirit. In the next moment when he preaches and Simon the magician comes and he believes the gospel and he's baptized, somehow and in some way, for some reason, Peter and John hear about this and they have to come down and lay hands on and the Holy Spirit comes to the believers. So we have a scenario in which people have received the Word of God, trusted Christ, been baptized by Philip who was able to heal the lame and the paralyzed and cast out demons, apparently by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet somehow, his working of the Holy Spirit, even miraculously so, and preaching, there's conversions, it's real, was different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the hands of Peter and John. Do you see that? Does anyone else read that and say to themselves, like, what? Where? How? I think there's a reminder for us in here to be careful about how we systematize the way the Holy Spirit works. It's tempting. This is how we think. We love systems and organization. We want to come to the Bible and we want to say this is exactly how God works by the Holy Spirit. He only works miraculously and with signs through the apostles. And He only works through the apostles in the book of Acts because the church needs to be established and then after that He just doesn't do it anymore. But these systems all fail at some point if we have an honest reading of our text. They all fail at some point with an honest reading of the text. And the answer at the end of the day is I think we need to be careful and say that God works unusually in Acts, right? It's unusual. I don't believe it's normative that someone is going around. I'm certainly not going through. I'm not going through the streets. I'm not down on Tharp Street just healing lame people, right? This doesn't seem normative. I don't think we can demand from God a normative experience like this. And I think it's okay to say that He's working unusually by His Spirit. seems like every time someone's preaching, people just getting healed up in there, right? But I do not want to make a system that somehow denies God sovereignty over the way that He works by His Spirit at any given point in history. I don't know why Philip could work miraculous things by his Spirit and convert people by his Spirit, but he was not authorized somehow to be like Peter and John and laying on hands. I don't know what it means, what kind of fullness of the Holy Spirit came to them post-baptism that wasn't there before. We simply aren't given all the specifics on these things. The specifics we're given in the reference to the Holy Spirit are this, long for fullness and let God be God. Beyond that, long for fullness and let God be God. Beyond that, I am in awe. I'm in wonder. I am amazed at God's ability to accompany His Word with signs and wonders. But I dare not create a system for God and declare. Now, there's some things that I think, if you want to grab coffee and say, what do you think's happening here? And how does the Holy Spirit work now, now that we have the scriptures? I mean, I have entire systems of what I could think, but I am not, I'm tempted to not preach them definitively, except to say that we need to long for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and we need to let God be God. Because this, this does not fit any set pattern, at least as far as I can tell. You think that's a fair assessment? I know that many of you probably right now are like, uh, 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 like, 
two snaps back, right? Like that's what you're thinking. And you have amazing, I'd love to talk with you about it. I really would. I have a million opinions on it. The question is, what do we know definitively in Acts chapter 8 is a mind bender for those who believe that they know definitively this is how the Holy Spirit works always. That much we know for sure. So, miracle working Philip, preaching Philip, goes down into Samaria, into a city, and he finds Simon. Simon is an interesting character. He claims to be someone great. The people believe that he is someone great. He does magic, which we're not sure if he is like David Copperfield and it's all illusion or if it's real magic. I'm going to ask the same question about the magicians in Egypt when Moses went. Do you remember that? When I was a little kid, I thought I had the whole story worked out. God's the only one who does miraculous things. And when Moses goes, he throws down his staff, it turns into a snake. Only God does that. And then I remember reading the story and being totally confused. They did it too. What? Right? I don't know. I'm going to ask God one day, was Simon's magic real? Or was the reason he followed Philip around because he could spot the difference? Someone who's done fake magic their whole life and been called someone great, when they encounter real power of God, I, am, I bet they would be amazed. They would walk around and then they would say, this is astounding. Regardless, it says that Simon believed. Verse 13, even Simon believed. Preaching brings believing. Do you believe that? We need to believe this. It's difficult to be on mission, the mission that Jesus has given us, if we do not believe wholeheartedly. Preaching brings believing. Preaching brings believing. That's the pattern we're seeing. Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. This is another pattern we're going to see all throughout Acts 8. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. It's why it's one of the reasons that we think it's a normative practice. Again, you see I'm using words like normative and usual, those kinds of things. I want to be dogmatic about things, about things that Scripture has made the most clear, 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 clear possible. And it seems pretty clear to me from this passage, right, normatively speaking, that there's belief, clear belief, and then baptism. It's not just Simon, it's also the eunuch in the next section. And all of the men and women, they believed and then they were baptized. Baptism was a part of Philip's preaching. Philip did not come back to them months later and say, I totally forgot. There's this baptism thing you should consider. He preaches Jesus and he says to them, if you want to be identified with him, then you come to the water of baptism and you identify yourself in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe and be baptized. That's why we practice believer's baptism at Four Oaks. There's a couple of things we can learn from Simon as well, though. Things don't end very well for him, at least in this particular text. And this is a temptation, and it should be a, a warning to all of us who would want to be religious. Simon learned an important lesson, and that lesson is this. No matter how earnestly you desire it, no matter how much you believe or what your speech is, you simply cannot use God. God will not be used. And it is unbelievably tempting to get involved in a church and to proclaim the right things, and at the end of the day, simply be using God Using God to feel better about yourself, using God to prop yourself up in the eyes of other people, using God for a network for business, using God for a tax deduction, using God for just a moral system, 
God will not be used. We come to Jesus Christ in a spirit of surrender to be used by Him. God will never be used by us. Conversion means nothing less than complete and total surrender to the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we find out from Simon, and it is a sad thing. He is soundly converted by Philip, and then he is soundly rebuked by Peter for confessing in a way that seems like he wants to use God. There's one more individual story. The magician's an interesting one. There's this Ethiopian eunuch. Poor guy, never gets a name. He's been in Jerusalem, apparently a convert of some kind. He's a religious person. He's been seeking God. He's been reading in the Scriptures. This guy is probably a little bit more respectable. In your, in your circles, you might know a person like this. There's probably very few Simon the Magicians. I'm a white witch. I'm a full whatever. Like, that's, Simon the Magician seems kind of like the person that you'd say, like, no way God saves that person. Uh-uh. No. No. This guy's different. This is the sort of God-fearing devout, seeking after. He's the kind of person that says like, oh, you're in a Bible study? I've always wondered about the Bible. I've always wondered what Jesus is. And I can tell you with certainty that if you're here today and you're here because you're curious, who is this Jesus and what does he mean? My friends keep talking about him. I've been intrigued by the Bible. I like to hear it taught for some reason. That seems weird to me. That This may be the very sign that God is orchestrating circumstances and events for you to sit underneath the Word of God so that you might come to the living Word of God and meet Jesus. This, this is the story we're hearing from this eunuch. I want you to note two things, God's sovereignty in this case and Philip's obedience. Again, Philip was scattered to go to Samaria. How does he get to meet the eunuch? An angel of the Lord has to come to him, Right? I love the clues we get in the text. An angel of the Lord comes to him, and you might think, well, that's kind of overkill. <laughs> like, send an, over, send an angel for an evangelism task? Well, it seems like it was an odd request. Why? Because this is a desert place. That's what the Scripture says. Verse 26 tells us this is a desert place. In other words, the initial reaction from Philip might have been, why would I go there? He's not on his way to get a big gulp. This is not a story of like, I ran into this guy at FSU tailgate. It was awesome. The angel of the Lord specifically directs him. And I love the pursuit. You know what I see behind this passage? I see what the old scholars and theologians called the hound of heaven. This idea that the Spirit of God is seeking and searching. You know that God loves the lost? He loves them. Do you know the beginning right now? All of those who will be saved that confess Jesus, God is working out untold circumstances to put them in a place to hear and receive good news. Isn't that amazing? Can you think back on your own story? Have you ever just put the pieces together? You ever put the pieces together of your story to meet Jesus and how astounding it is? And even if it's the most simple story in the world, you think it's simple, it's not simple. God had to meet your parents and save them or your grandparents and save them and put them in a good church and hear Bible teaching and help them to get over a million sins that hindered them and a million doubts that would have shipwrecked their faith, brought them together in a marriage so that you might be created right. All of these circumstances, all the way to get to the point where you see Jesus and you receive him, God is working. I see this I see this picture of God looking down and, and glaring down and, and searching and seeing the heart of this eunuch. Seeing the heart of this eunuch. 
and beginning to orchestrate circumstances. God is sovereign over these things. He's amazing. He's seeking. He's sovereign and Philip is obedient. So Philip, it says, he rose and went. This is a desert place, but I will rise and go, right? He gets up and he goes. Just a couple other comments on this Ethiopian eunuch. It's significant. Once again, the gospel preaching comes from the Old Testament. I want to get rid of those words. The First Testament, the Fulfilled Testament. There's different ways to say these sorts of things. And Philip simply opens his mouth and speaks Scripture. This is the simplest evangelism plan of all time. I love verse 35. This is simple, right? Be sensitive to God's Spirit and open your mouth. This is, a good, this is a good evangelism plan. If we put an evangelism program in for the whole church, I think we should just start here. Here's a good foundation for evangelism. Be sensitive to the Spirit of God and open your mouth. That is what Philip did. He begins with Scripture. This is a good place to begin. Not our opinions, not an apologetic for the existence of God, not a perfect understanding of why evil exists, beginning with Scripture, God's very words, and lead them to Jesus. I don't want to make it sound like all those discussions are bad. They're good. Sometimes we need to get someone to a point where they receive the Word of God. But speak to them God's very words. The message once again includes baptism. Believe and be baptized. Apparently the gospel so included the obedience in baptism that the eunuch even understood it. He's the one that saw water and said, I want to be baptized. That thing you're telling me about, I want to be baptized. And so they go down and there's obviously a celebration that the Spirit of, Lord, Spirit of the Lord had met this man. I want to press home the point again. These are two stories of people who were brought from darkness to light. That's what we're seeing. You know, we just read birth narrative. We just read birth narrative. We're going to read another one. In Acts chapter 9, this is birth narrative, someone coming alive. This is not, oh, how sweet. He got like another lesson in religious studies. He really liked the scripture before, and now he got some more understanding. I just want to be a man of understanding. No, we need new life. This is a birth narrative. God has met a man who is dead in his sins and made him alive. This is astounding. And at the end of the day, no matter how much good the gospel does in all the earth, I'm going to command you every week, I say, God, help us to love our city and to be a blessing. We can do all of the good in the world. We can describe a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth in such an inspiring way. And if you are not made alive by confessing your sins and meeting Jesus, it is all for naught. It is false assurance to say that God is making all things new unless you meet Jesus who makes your heart new. That's what's happening in this story. There's individual conversion. I thought about ways to wrap this up. I probably wanted to say to you specifically that Philip, it seems like, was not a man who set out to be an evangelist. I love that about his story. You know that at one season of his life, he was not only waiting tables, he was appointed and commissioned to wait tables. This is an amazing story. Philip, the table waiter guy, was faithful in his task, and then God eventually moved him to be Philip the evangelist. Any of you feel like you're in the waiting table stage of your life? 
It seems like everyone is there at some point, right? I'm just, I'm not in the season. This is not where my giftedness is. I know I should be doing something different. I know I have a longer, a bigger dream. I have, I long to be used in significant ways. And here I am, I'm in Jerusalem and I'm caring for these neglected Hellenistic widows. And I just, this is not what I was made for. Let me commend to you faithfulness in this season. Just because God has commissioned you in a particular task at a particular season does not mean this is his destiny for you for, the, for all time. Press in and be faithful. I know this sounds so cheesy. This is like an American Idol like personal interest story. We first met Taylor when she was 14 and singing for birthday parties. Now, shake it off, right? Like, shake, shake it. Like, you know what I mean? That's, the, that's what it sounds like. Oh, Philip, little table waiter guy made good. That's not the point. But the point is, is that God asks you to be faithful sometimes at different seasons of your life, and that looks very different. That looks very, very different. I want to encourage you as well to show that God is sovereign over salvation. He cares for the lost. And in this instance, he's using an individual to speak the word of Christ. Church is awesome. Church evangelism is good. You bring, you bring as many people as we possibly can to this room, and I will keep saying to them, confess your sins and rest in Jesus. I will say it over and over and over and over again. Philip's work, Philip's being used by God, is outside of the institutional norm of the church. Do you see that? He's off in a foreign land. He's speaking by himself. It seems like God's directing him. At the end of the day, God will save Tallahassee through individual conversations your friends because you open your mouth and you speak about Jesus to them. That's what it's going to work. I am not in the business. I do not want to be a professional saver of souls. <laughs> like, the goal of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This can be a work of ministry. I thought about saying this is a cheesy tagline. It'll never go on a bumper sticker. It won't go on the back of this, this screen right here. But like, you know what we really want? We want to like, we want to invite people to party like a eunuch. That's what we want. <laughs> That's what we want. Party like a eunuch. And I know that's a terrible catchphrase, this terrible catchphrase. Maybe just internally, just us, we get that. This is what happens. People who are hopeless and destitute, maybe searching and stirred up in soul, they meet Jesus. And what does it say in verse 39? They go on their way rejoicing. We are not seeking to bludgeon people with truth and be judgmental. We're not calling them some sort of dogmatic life of boredom. We're calling them to joy. Evangelism is calling people to joy, eternal joy. I know that's lame. Would it be that God would send His Spirit for you to evangelize and many who are lost and dead right now would party like a eunuch, right? That's the goal. That's, that's the idea. That's the hope. I'm praying for it. Are you praying for that? You know that when Philip woke up this day, do you think he said to himself, ah, oh, my plan for the day today is to meet an angel of the Lord and to go to a desert place and to find an Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. If that happens, then I'll be faithful. No, right? But do you believe this? Do you believe that right now that God is seeking and searching and looking and has many in this city who have not called in the name of Jesus yet? Do you believe that tomorrow morning you could wake up and God could be arranging circumstances so that you come in contact with, just to love well and be a friend and meet someone in their need. We need to believe, we need to believe, we need to believe this. And I want to see God use us in this way. Let me pray for you.
God, thank you that you are making all things new. This is a global rescue project. You sent Jesus to redeem all things. And I pray that in the grandness of that vision and the big numbers that we read in Acts, that we would not forget.